right, last week we talked about how God has designed us to be in relationship. In fact, we even said that it's really in our very DNA by his design. And since we are trying to keep first things first, then we taught last week as we were concluding that we want you and ourselves to be pursuing a moment-by-moment relationship with God. And that is going to be one step toward a cure for debilitating loneliness. But we also said last week, we ended with this statement. We said that if, if you have a relationship with God, that's between me and him, we still will find ourselves lonely. Because the first step alone is not enough. We're going to be talking about that more in just a moment. It just simply is a very first step. So today's step is going to be just as significant as last week's step. And I find it so interesting, though, that God has designed our bodies. He designed us to be relational, to be social. Um, And he also designed these bodies with some very specific biological systems. Now, Bear with me as I nerd out for just a moment. These biological systems have a very specific purpose, and they send us some signals. Now, some of those uh, signals are produced that there are negative feelings, perhaps, um, but these are signals that are by God's design that are used to motivate us to act in certain ways so that we as humans can survive. Here's one of those signals. It's called hunger. I love that one. Hunger. It's triggered when our blood sugar gets low and it motivates us to then go and find some kind of source of food. And it happens way before we're going to die of starvation, uh, which I'm pretty close to. You can tell by looking at me, I know. But it happens way before that point. And here's why, because thousands of years ago, they had to have plenty of time when they were hungry, had to have plenty of time before they died in order to go hunt, fish and gather food. And they would have that sensation, I'm hungry. It would motivate them to go do something about it. Here's another one, thirst. Thirst is another warning signal, and it motivates us to go and search for some kind of drinkable water prior to falling victim of dehydration. So it happens long before that. It's a warning signal. Another one of those is pain. Pain is an early warning signal, and it helps notify us of potential tissue damage, and it motivates us to slow down, to look at our body, to take care of our bodies, to be cautious. And it so it's also a warning signal. Now, we might think that that's all the biological warning signals. They all stop there. But the reality is they don't. Because although this next one is not common sense to us, and although it is not intuitive to us, the pain of loneliness, that pain of feeling isolated from other people around us, is also part of our biological early warning system. This pain alerts us to threats and damage, potential damage to our social body, which you also need. And you certainly must have if you're going to thrive. Now, we talked last week. We said God created us as social beings, social creatures. And we have all, as as these physical beings that God created, we have all experienced that warning sign of physical pain, uh, that warning sign of hunger, that warning sign of thirst. But we have also, at various times in our lives, experienced that warning sign of, perhaps it looked like this for you, uh, the heartbreak of homesickness. You've had that maybe, or the agony of bereavement, or that torment of unrequited love. Oh, my entire eighth grade year, I had that. I've, I was, I had that, and and you may have had that as well. And also the pain of being shunned by other people. All of those are variations of the pain of loneliness. And you know what? Loneliness is on the rise. It's increasing. Listen to this. In 1980s, they uh, did a study that showed about 20% of Americans at any given point in time were suffering from loneliness. 
That was the 1980s. Two recent surveys have indicated that that number has doubled to now 40%. And what's amazing about this is that even though almost half of the population is suffering from loneliness, we don't hear people talking about it because loneliness has been stigmatized. You know, for us to admit that, it makes us feel like a loser. It makes us feel like a weak person to admit that. So we simply just deny that feeling of loneliness. We push that feeling deep, deep, deep inside, which makes no more sense than us denying that we feel hungry or we feel thirsty or we feel pain. So we're just content to just try to live with loneliness, even though we know that loneliness is a major risk factor that can cause us all kinds of health issues. Consider this, living with air pollution can increase our odds of an early death by 5%. You realize that? Living with obesity, I know this one well, it can increase your odds of an early death by 20%. Excessive drinking can increase your odds of death by 30%. Now, an analysis of over 100,000 participants showed that living with loneliness increases your odds of an early death by 45%. That is staggering. When some uh, researchers did some studies on non-human social animals, they used uh, some isolation tests and they showed that those animals would suffer from psychological and physiological and biological consequences and it would shorten their lives of those animals. You see, when we are lonely, we are living with a constant uh, uh, stress that is this stress hormone that puts us in the fight, flight, or freeze mode. And our physical bodies were not designed to live all day long with that stress hormone pumping through our body. It damages us. You know what the result is? Of loneliness, here, here we go, of living with that stress hormone. 29% higher risk of heart disease, 32% higher risk of a stroke. And yet we are the most connected, but we're the most connected, disconnected people in all of history. And our physical and psychological bodies suffer because of that. Think with me about a typical evening. This may be a typical, typical evening for you. Um, just think about being at home with your family or being at home with some friends. Maybe they come over. Maybe you're on the couch. Maybe you're sitting around a table. But here's the reality. So many times in our homes in the evening, we are right beside each other, but we are on our smartphones, right? We're right beside each other, but we're on our smartphones. We can be two inches apart, but a thousand miles away because we're on our phones. You know, our culture's fixation with connecting to friends online brings about a risk of disconnecting with the friends who are waiting for you to be present in their offline world right in front of you. Simply put, it is possible to be in someone's presence, but not be present. Wow. Being connected with technology has disconnected us from ourselves, from others, and from the preciousness of this present moment. Our smartphones have not made us smarter with people. We realize it's impacted our mental health, right? We know this. Since the introduction of smartphones, anxiety and depression have been on a steady rise. It has impacted us, the, the whole social media and just screens and overindulgence of information. It has consumed our attention. And listen, we're not just talking about kiddos. 
How many times for us as adults, how many times during the day do we look at our smartphones and we are checking our social media accounts, we're, we're uh, uh, reading the news, we're looking up recipes, <laughs> delicious, we're searching for something online, right? often do we do that? And also, how often do we do that before we ever even get out of bed in the mornings? You see, in the 1980s and the 90s, the concern for parents was don't let your kid watch too much TV. And that was pretty much it. And now everything, everything in the world is at our fingertips. We really have it all right here. Devices everywhere. We've got it. And that level of activity, it has some effects on our lives. Blue light, you're, you're aware of this. It affects our sleep. I mean, let's be honest. We already know this, right? We've been told about this. I don't know if you've been told about why it affects our sleep. The more time that we are on a device, especially the closer we get to bedtime, the less melatonin we produce in our bodies, meaning the less regenerative sleep that we get that night. And without that kind of sleep, our immune system suffers. It's weaker. And more importantly, we cannot detoxify that stress hormone out of our body. And that's one thing that happens with good sleep at night. Here's something that I, I think probably you didn't know. This was information to me. This could terrify you. And in fact, what I'm about to tell you could immediately change the way you parent. The amount of screen time that a person gets impacts their brain's ability to grow. There was a study that started in 2018, and it, it discovered that children with two hours of screen time a day scored lower on their language and their thinking test. Now, we're like, that doesn't sound too bad. I mean, I can maybe live with a few lower scores, but listen to this next part. This is scary. There's more. Here's this next part. Children with more than seven hours of screen time during the day experienced a thinning of the brain's cortex. Now listen, parents, this is the part of the brain related to critical thinking, related to reasoning, and quite honestly, this is the part of the brain that separates us from all the animals that God created. This part of the brain, seven or more hours a day, caused this part of the brain to begin to thin in those children. That's important. It's been proven. How did we not hear about that sooner? There's more, <laughs> but wait. Chronic overuse of screens, it also stunts our social, relational, and emotional development. Now, I want to be very clear. Because we are not, Cole is speaking in Malvern today, we are not down on screens. We are not down on technology. Cole and I, we use them. We are thankful for them. These are great tools. We use them. But as with many things, when misused, there are ramifications. And a significant one is the last one I just mentioned. A social and relational arrested development. With the chronic overuse of screens, individuals stop developing socially and relationally. And sometimes there's an arrest. I mean, it just stops completely. And with, with some, there is actual regression. They go backwards. They don't go forward in their development. They go backwards. It is as if we have forgotten as humans how to have a conversation. Or perhaps in our conversations, we have forgotten how to regulate ourselves within a one-on-one -on -one exchange. And my friends, listen, these are, my, these are not my opinions. Research is showing us this. The 
misuse, the overuse, the misuse of screens results in an underuse of social, emotional, and relational skills. As with brain development, if we don't use it, we lose it. When we don't engage in face-to-face interactions on a regular basis, we actually begin to lose the ability to recognize and respond to facial cues when we're face-to-face with someone. We begin to lose the ability to uh, respond to and recognize the, the voice, tone, and inflection, and body language of another person. You see, these are learned. These are not intuitive. We begin to to lose the ability to gauge the energy of emotions in a room. When we lose the face-to-face relational skills, our development at that point has been arrested. At that point, we actually don't know how to properly engage with other people. And in turn... Yep, you guessed it. We become lonelier. And see, here's where it becomes cyclical. Because as we become lonelier, then we withdraw from people. And when we withdraw from people, we get lonelier. And when we're lonelier, we withdraw more and we get lonelier and we withdraw more and we get lonely. It's just a cycle that repeats. The lonelier we become, the more we withdraw, which is why last week we introduced a step and we said this, the first step on the path of getting out of loneliness is to recognize and understand we were created to dwell with God, not just for a moment, but for eternity. And we're going to see today that not only are we created to dwell with God for eternity, we're created to dwell with other people for eternity. Because if we are not face-to-face, life-on-life, dwelling with somebody, we are going to be lonely. And living with loneliness was not part of God's original design. But loneliness and separation from others, that all took place for the first time in the Garden of Eden. And after all, We are all children of Eden. And you know what? Last week, this is kind of where we ended. We said that God created everything. God created, you know, he created the the, the space, the, the, the earth and land and water and atmosphere. And he created plants and animals, the whole universe. He created and he created Adam. And when he looked at all of it, he said it was good, but apparently it was not very good. This is important. It wasn't very good. And in fact, listen to this, God created it and it was perfect. But listen, at that moment, it was not good enough. Isn't that weird? That just makes my brain do weird things. It was not good enough. Something was missing. God and Adam had a perfect relationship. This, they had a perfect relationship in the garden, God and Adam, but it was not good. Don't miss this. According to scripture at that moment, God, Adam, Something was actually not good. And this is before sin. That's so weird to me. The writer of Genesis tells us in verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Although Adam was created in the image of God, there was something about that image that was missing. Something was unfinished. Something was not good. And yet God created it. That relationship that God has with the son, that the son has with the spirit, how they are three separate entities somehow, but completely one. 
slips my mind, but it's a relational connection. And somehow that was not yet represented with Adam on earth. And so God said, it is not good. So we're told that God has one last very, very important part to create. When God then says, I will make a helper who is just right for him. And so God created a woman to partner with, stand side by side with Adam. And the two of them together would be stronger. And suddenly with this part of the creation finished, Suddenly, creation no longer was just good. According to God at this moment, it became very good. And that was the final piece that God placed. Don't miss this. You see, God didn't just create a me. He created a we. And I want to be transparent with you for a moment here. Because this kind of flips my lid thinking about this. Have you ever wondered why God didn't just create Eve from the very beginning? Why go to the point of all this creation and then calling something about that creation not good? Why just not make it very good from the, uh, from the beginning, right? Why not do that, God? Did he forget? Uh, was he surprised? Did he say, oh, shoot, I didn't see that coming? <laughs> no, I don't think so. We know that God always has a plan and we know that God is never surprised. So that makes a person wonder, at least me, this person. Did he do that for our benefit just to make a point? Like, listen, God's saying, hey, Adam, or hey, Harley, or hey, friends, listen. This relationship thing is a big deal and it's bigger than you have imagined. And just to prove it, I'm going to call an audible right here. I planned it and I'm going to call it right here. And I'm going to do this to highlight just how important relationships truly are. Because let's face it, apparently through the creation of the woman, there was now a fuller, more complete reflection of God's relational image now on earth, that image of God, the father, God, the son, God, the spirit now present somehow reflected into the life of Adam because he created Eve. And only now that he's created Eve, can humanity experience dwelling uh, a deeper, more holistic, physical, relational, mental, emotional, and spiritual connection that we can only experience as a we, not as a me and God. You see, to dwell with God, it takes time. But this week, we're not going to stop with simply dwelling. Because now we're talking about dwelling with God and dwelling with other people. But it goes beyond just dwelling. Because he created us to gaze into the life of other people. And that too is God's design. God's intention from the very start was for us as humans who were created to dwell with God to also dwell with others. Now, bear with me for a moment. Dwelling with one another, connecting with one another, engaging with one another. Does that not just scream face to face, eye to eye contact? Does that perfect dwelling not involve looking into the eyes of another person, into the lives of other people, no matter how messy this life that I have might be? But you know what? That perfect dwelling and gazing that existed in the garden did not last long. We went from God-created dwelling and God-created gazing into others' lives to man-created separating and man-created hiding 
It was in the garden at that moment when they sinned. That's when we created loneliness. And we did that by moving away from God's story as we tried to cope with our own story on our own terms. There's just something about the eyes, you know? Even scripture refers to the eyes as a very important instrument as part of the fall of Adam and Eve when they sinned. See, the evil one was there in the garden and, and he was telling them things like, listen, listen, Eve, God, God doesn't want you to open your eyes and to see and experience life the way he does. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want you, Eve, to have what he has. Because if you do, you will actually know God better. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want you to know him better. If you do this, if you'll take this fruit, eat this fruit, you will know him better. You will be more like him. And then we're told. So Eve saw with her eyes that beautiful tree. And the fruit looked, because she saw it with her eyes, delicious. So they both ate. And then in Genesis 3, 7, Moses tells us at that moment, their eyes were opened. There's just something about those eyes. And when they ate that fruit, it did not lead to greater understanding the way that they were led to believe by the evil one. No, it led to greater fear and it led to greater separation. Moses goes on, he tells us, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig, fig leaves together to cover themselves. Immediately after they sinned, they began to be separated and they began to hide themselves from their own eyes. They're like standing in a, like being for me in the mornings in a room of mirrors. I come out of the shower. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't take this. This is horrible. And Adam's looking at himself. Oh my goodness, this? Eve's looking at herself. Oh no. And they hide from themselves. And then they're hiding from each other. I can't let them see me. I, 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 get, I go from the shower to clothes on so fast at my house before my wife can see me. She still probably has no idea that I have uh, arms or anything under this shirt. I, I, I go so fast. And Adam and Eve are now hiding from themselves. They're hiding from each other. And the very next verse, Adam and Eve then hide themselves and hide their eyes from God. In that very next verse. Friends, there's, there's just something about the eyes. Something about the eyes. I think we all know this too. Real intimacy comes from talking, sharing, connecting, face-to-face -face in the same space. Face-to-face -face in the same space. It's just deeper. It's more satisfying. It's a better connection. It's just real. There's not a more intimate communication that can be made between humans than being seen by that person, being heard and understood by that person in the same physical space, eye to eye with another person. That is God's original design. He described it this way. He, he said, because Jesus, have, have you ever heard the phrase? Um, I, I know you have. Uh, the phrase that says, uh, the eyes are the window to the what? Yeah, right. We've heard that. The eyes are the window to the soul. Do you realize that, that um, Jesus actually was the first one to hint at that? And he describes it this way. Uh, it's as if as we gaze into someone's eyes, we're looking through them and somehow we can see into that person's heart and soul. And there we will find either light or darkness. Here's how he words that. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. This is Jesus speaking. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, oh, how deep that darkness is. Consider the implications of this. 
When we gaze into another person's eyes and we allow them to gaze into ours, they get a glimpse of what's going on inside my heart and inside my soul. They get a glimpse of the messiness in my life. But let's face it. Oh, my goodness. That that is not intuitive for us. Because we prefer hiding from other people. That's what we prefer. We don't gaze because gazing into someone's eyes is scary. It is messy. It can lead to feeling shame and fear and embarrassment. Just like it did for Adam and Eve. We don't slow down enough to notice anyone's eyes or to look into their heart. We don't even see their faces. But. It's when we are gazing into eyes that we are told a story. We're told a story of that person's joy or maybe their sorrow, possibly their hope, their despair, their confusion, maybe their contentment, but we're told a story. But we don't gaze. We don't hold their gaze long enough to determine any of this because it's simply too vulnerable. I found this interesting. The average length of a mutual gaze, three seconds. There is no possibility of assessing the health and well-being of someone if we are unwilling or unable to look into their soul longer than three seconds. Uh, Let's be honest. If someone looks into your eyes, For more than three seconds, you immediately think, that's creepy. (laughs) They're freaking me out. But to gaze, it, it just takes time. And my friends, God allowed for that time. God set aside, get ready. He set aside an eternity for you to gaze into other people's eyes. Not just to be around them but to gaze face to face into the deepest parts of their soul and them into yours. Because the eyes have a way of telling a story where words often fail. Eyes will tell you if somebody's smile is real because so often eyes will often smile first. We've experienced this the past two years behind masks. We could tell if, if what was happening behind the mask based upon their eyes, right? We've experienced that. Do you know also your pupils will dilate? It's a sign of, of engagement with another person of interest, care, and concern. A mutual gaze is a sign of care, love, and compassion for that person. Eye-to-eye connection, it's an important tool, and it is required for the development of relationships and attachment. We could go on and on with this topic. I just want you to know this. The evil one doesn't want you to connect deeply. He fights to keep you isolated. He fights to keep us hiding from one another. He fights to keep us lonely. Now listen, loneliness is not going to be solved when you get married. Now this this is a big statement coming up, but listen, loneliness isn't even solved when you become a follower of Jesus and you enter into a me and Jesus relationship. Loneliness is solved when we're invited into the relational family of God. Mess and all. God said it is not good for humans to be alone. That's not me talking. That is coming directly from the creator. And we know this deep down inside of our lives. We know this. We feel this, that God designed it somehow. And so we long, even if you're not a God follower, a Jesus follower, we long for real connection. But listen, real connection is scary. 
And real connection is, it's messy. Oh my goodness, it can be paralyzing. Because perfect connection was destroyed in the garden. And ever since that point, humans have been desperately searching for reconnection. Because that's the way we were meant to live. We were not even meant to live just God, God and me, God and me. That, that's not how we were meant to live. We were meant to live you and me and God. You see, our failure did not catch God by surprise. He knew it was coming. In the garden, he knew it was going to happen and he had a plan. And he knew that we would be lonely because we would separate and we would hide. And that's why the psalmist writes this. He says, God places the lonely in families. God, he makes a home for the lonely. God takes the lonely and he sets them into a family. And if you will trace that family from the old covenant all the way into the new covenant, which we're living in that new covenant right now, you will find out that God, that family that God is talking about here in the new covenant, that family is a family of Jesus followers, a gathering of people who come together and form this thing called a church. That is actually part of God's reconnection fix. And it is within this new family that I must physically dwell, be physically present, and I must gaze into someone's eyes in that family, face to face, eye to eye. And I must find a person or a handful of people within that family that when I let them gaze into my life, I allow them to look upon my wounds and my brokenness and my messiness. And they choose to stay there. They choose to continue to dwell with me, continue to gaze into my eyes and into my life. And it is at that moment then that I can say, this is a person with whom I dwell because they're still here. After looking at that mess, they're still here. They're still at the table with me. They're still in the room. They did not run away in horror. They are still here dwelling with me face to face, eye to eye, looking into my soul, my brokenness. Years later, they are still here. When that happens... My friends, loneliness loses. Shame loses. The evil one in that moment loses because he did not ultimately destroy what he set out to destroy in the garden and in all of creation. He was not successful at keeping us isolated and keeping us lonely. Let me give you an example. God has created some kind of power in this special kind of connection that we can experience with one another and that I believe he has designed you to experience within the church. Some kind of special power. So here, here's uh, Kevin brought his little red wagon for me today. Imagine this wagon rolling by itself towards me at three miles an hour. That's just like a walking pace, right? three miles an hour towards me and I can just stick my foot out and I'll be able to stop that wagon. No trouble at all. I can stop the wagon. But if I'm standing on a train track and I'm being approached by a train at three miles an hour, that's still just a walking pace. But there is no way, no way, no matter how hard I push, no matter how hard I try, there is no way I'm stopping that train. It's only three miles an hour, but there's no way I'm stopping that train. 
no way. It is going to crush me. It is going to dismember me. It is going to destroy me, not because of its speed, but because of its mass and shame and loneliness are as big in my life and your life as that locomotive. And there is no way we can stop it by ourselves. We need more than ourselves. We actually need a bigger train with us, behind us to stop that train. It's got to be bigger or we're going to get crushed and devastated. My friends, our faith community, this thing called a church, this local gathering of Jesus followers is meant to be that train. It is bigger than the locomotive. It is bigger than your shame. It is bigger than your loneliness. We need something bigger to stop the shame. And God designed it to be found in the relationships of a faith community called the church. But fear and loneliness, they stop us. Fear and loneliness keeps us from the very thing that was designed to help us, the very thing we need. The very place where we can find someone, a handful of people to gaze, to dwell with, and, and look face to face, eye to eye, into their lives and them into mine. But because of fear, at best, we only know glancing. We're comfortable with a glance. But glancing is not gazing. Gazing is uncomfortable. Our church community needs a higher EQ. Do you know what that stands for? We all, we all know about IQ. Do you know about EQ? It is emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is this. It is when we are aware of our own emotions and we are able to pick up on someone else's emotions. And then we have the skills to engage in an interpersonal relationship with that person. Emotional intelligence is the capacity to be aware of and to control and to express our emotions and handle interpersonal relationships judiciously and empathetically. That's what EQ is. Why are we so bad at it? I don't know why previous generations were bad at it. I, I don't know. But I know some things, some things that are hurting us right now and lowering our EQ right now. And it is an overuse of social media, an overuse or misuse of smartphones, even texting and screens. Because all of those things give us a, a faux dwelling, a faux gazing, and it ultimately increases our loneliness. We don't find it difficult to gaze at a beautiful sunset. We love that, a beautiful sunrise. But it's a whole nother thing to allow somebody to gaze into my life and look at my offenses and look at my wounds and look at my mess. That's a whole nother thing. We want to diffuse it. We want to divert their attention away from it because those are the places in my life, in your life that we look at and we say, these are the most ugly places in my life, the most ugly parts of me. And I don't want them to see it. I don't want them to gaze upon that. But listen, my friends, God has a plan for those ugly parts. I promise you, he's got a plan. Have you heard the phrase beauty from ashes? Well, there's also this, eventually beauty from right in the middle of trauma. And it comes from God placing the lonely in a family where they dwell and they stay over the long haul where they get face to face, 
eye to eye, life to life with somebody. They're gazing into each other's lives. Even Jesus allowed people to gaze upon him, upon his nakedness, upon the wounds while he was on the cross. They gazed at his vulnerability. And he chose all of that. And he allowed people to gaze upon his life in that moment. I really desire for this to be, uh, oh, now I see. An oh, now I see moment that we must get face to face, eye to eye with someone. And for today, it all all comes down to this. I'm letting you know this right now as I'm losing my voice. We, Stuttgart Harvest Church, we need you. You see, our tendency is to hear something like this and to just agree. Oh, yeah, uh, you're right, Harley. You're right, Cole. I can see how that's true. You're right. That's our tendency to just agree. And say, yeah, yeah, you're right, Harley. I'm lonely. You're right. Our tendency is to feel the pain and leave here and just complain. That's our tendency. But we have to do the hard work ourselves, each one of us. We must push through our fear that keeps us separated, that keeps us hiding. If God places the lonely in families, and he does, that's what he does then we have to take the next step. We have to do that ourselves. He places us in the family, but then we have something we must do. We, the lonely, must connect with other lonely people. And we must dwell with them. And we must gaze into their life and allow them to gaze into our life. Or we are going to remain lonely because we keep hiding even inside a church family. So my friends, this church family needs you. Every single one of you. We need you. We need you to help us create the kind of church that Jesus Christ died for. One where souls dwell, they don't just attend. They're not simply here on a visit, not occasionally dropping in where they don't have something else to do. No, 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 no. Where each one of us, where we do the hard work, the uncomfortable work of gazing into each other's souls. That's what we need, where we experience connection the way God intended. It takes work. And oh, it takes hard work. It is hard work for the lonely to step through that fear, through that uncomfortable state to where we can dwell and then gaze into the lives. I mentioned these earlier, these little, these little coins. On there are the... First two letters, we call them our elements. They're our core values. Last week, we talked about the W-O, which was worship. And that's where we were saying we were born, created to dwell with God. And this morning, the two core values that are highlighted because of this, what we're teaching today, we have the core value of acceptance. It says AC, that's for acceptance. And our core value of acceptance says this, we throw lifelines to people, not rocks. Listen, that's why it is safe for us to gaze into somebody's life because a rock is not getting ready to hit them with their lifelines. And that next core value, that next element is the CO, and that stands for community. And you know what we say about our community? Care starts there. And for us, our communities are small groups. This morning, you can take a step with us toward that. You can sign up to be in a small group. The fall trimester is going to be starting uh, sometime in September. We're going to sign up 
through uh, uh, through August and into parts of September. You can sign up today. I, I don't even know what the what the small groups are going to be. I can't tell you that. But all I can just simply say is this: on the back of your connection card or on your online version, just say I'm signing up for a small group, and we will get you information as that information is is published. You can do that today. Sign up for a small group. Care starts there. It's the very beginning process of you finding that you can dwell with, finding some lives that you can gaze into their life. You, they can gaze into yours. Because God places the lonely in families. Friends, we can become that. Let, let's learn how to do that, how to be that. And we need you to help us to learn how to do that and how to be that. We need you to help us learn how to dwell with each other, to help us learn how to gaze into the lives around us and allow them to gaze into ours. We need your help. Will you help us? Let's pray. God, you place the lonely into families. Would you help us take the time to dwell with this family? Would you help us to step through our fear and find someone within this family that we can gaze into their life, into their soul, and allow them to gaze into ours? Thank you that you have created a place here of acceptance where we throw lifelines to everyone around us. We do not throw them rocks. And God, where you have created a place that more and more year after year, we are getting better and better and better at this thing called community. Because we understand care starts there. So God, I ask that this morning you would give each of us the wisdom to know what to do with what we have heard today. And we ask you, Father, in the name of Jesus, to give us the courage to do that very thing. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.